poetry fans, it's Alice here with another episode of Poetry Says. This time I brought back a previous guest of mine, Maggie Ball, and it was wonderful to talk to Maggie again. This episode turned into a really fun retrospective about all the stuff we had been reading over the summer. Maggie is a voracious reader. She reads, she reviews, uh, she's a prolific writer as well, and It was just so great to talk to her. It really kind of gave me that fire that I want to read more. I want to keep reading and, yeah, keep thinking about all different kinds of books. We talk about fiction, nonfiction, and we do get into poetry as well. It reminded me of something that I resisted for a long time as when I started writing poetry, which is that reading is just as important, if not more important, than sitting down and writing Um, For a long time, I just kind of tapped away at my keyboard thinking I was a genius and I didn't really read much stuff that was out there. Um, Yeah, it was only when I started reading that I actually started getting a little bit better, I think. So yeah, along with a whole bunch of books, we also cover things like the age-old question of difficult versus easy poetry, um, the poetry that does and doesn't speak to us. We talk about the benefits of reading in collaboration with others, group readings, um, and how they can really open up a poem for you. And towards the end, we talk a bit about our poetry goals for 2018 and the exercise of sending your manuscript to quote-unquote totally inappropriate publishers, which is really interesting. So yeah, it was so great to catch up with Maggie again. Felt like catching up with an old friend. And I hope you enjoy this chat. Thanks for listening. So what have you been reading? Oh, I'm always reading a lot of stuff. Um, And, you know, I always like that question because I could go on. But the, the the book that's absorbing me at the moment, I'm, I'm rereading the whole of Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials in preparation for The Book of Dust. So The Book of Dust has come out, which is the new the new book in the whole of the series. Um, but before I read it, I really need it's been such a long time since I've read the whole the whole series of His Dark Materials, you know, The Golden Compass, etc. that um, I thought I'd better kind of reread it but I don't have time to reread it because I've got another like four books that I'm reading so I thought I'll just do the audiobooks so I've downloaded the audiobooks and I'm actually listening to the audios which are read by Philip himself so that's what's been absorbing me the most oh that's pretty great if he's reading it himself I haven't read any of those I have to oh, admit do the audiobook it's it's really I, I don't know are you into audios yeah I love audiobooks I just for some reason I think the last one I actually um tried was atlas shrugged (laughs) because i was like i don't want to read this i do not want to read this book but i I want to have some birthday today as well so it's funny you should even mention it it? oh that's hilarious yeah i was just like i want to have some understanding of what this person is about because a, a really good friend of mine was deeply into atlas shrugged and read it once a year Ah! <laughs> she's a lovely know, very reasonable person as well so yeah i'm not joking i would say that that is possibly the worst book i have ever read so you've and read the whole speaks. thing 
Yeah, I've read it, but not in high, you know, at uni and maybe even in high school, but not because of its philosophy, which is also awful, but <laughs> because it was so badly written. Oh my God, it's so bad. Okay. Yeah, no, that's the thing. So that's why I was like, okay, audiobook, then it can just kind of wash over me. I kept falling asleep, like in public, <laughs> which I've never done that before <laughs> in my life. And it just lulled me into this like. Uh, Is it actually read by Rand? No, no. Um, oh, my God. I hate her so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you raised that because, you know, it's all positive, positive, positive. We need balance. Now we have balance. Yeah, that's right. There are things we don't like. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, okay, that's a great recommendation. Philip Pullman reading his Dark Materials series. Oh, it's so good. And it's, you know, it's very absorbing. So if you've read something a little heady, maybe you've read some, I don't know, let's just say you've been reading Michael Farrell or something, you know, and you just need a little a, a little break that involves, I'm, I'm not saying Philip Pullman is light because he's definitely not, nor is he necessarily easy, but, you know, the fictive dream is strong. You get sucked in and you kind of forget everything. So it's, it's a really good absorbing book for a break from something that involves a lot of, um, I guess a lot of work, you know, like the, the way sometimes the way hard poetry involves work. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I have been reading a bit of Michael Farrell over the summer. Well, there I've you been go. Actually, <laughs> reading uh, Open Sesame, which I think is 2011 or uh, quite a while back, and then his his newest collection, I Love Poetry, and just yes, sort of thought- looking at the differences there. Yeah, and and I do I love Michael Farrell, but you know he's there's work there to be done by the reader. That's part of the, I think that's part of the engagement. It's almost, I feel like it's almost like a puzzle. Well, I really want to read these poems um, with someone. I really feel like they would benefit most from being read with a couple of other people in a group because there are so, there's so much packed into every single line and I don't really feel like I'm getting the most out of it when I'm just reading them on my own. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. D- difficult poetry really works well in a collaborative setting. Yeah. Maybe I need to start a Michael Farrell reading group. Whoever wants to be in on that. I'll be in on it. Get in touch. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. Me and Maggie are going to read it. That would be great, actually. Yeah. We should do We should do a little video or something. Yeah. That would be sweet. It's a, it's um, a good. I think it's good work for that. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. That's a good thing to do. Um, so yeah, if we keep talking, we'll have a whole work plan for 2018. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> so you do, you read, you're listening to that, but what are these four that you've got to read? Oh, um, well, I don't, I guess I don't have to read anything, but <laughs> I was, I have a pile. <laughs> so one of the books I'm reading, actually, I just, another book I finished reading that took me months and I'm not, I mean, I'm not normally a super speedy reader, but I'm not normally that slow. This one really, it, in fact, my husband was joking that I was never going to finish it, and I thought I never would. Um, Paul Auster's 4321, which is a big, big book. Mm. And I, I was reading that for such a long time, and I haven't written my review yet, so I'm not 100% sure how I feel about it yet. I will know when I finish writing my review. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, always uh, a good way to find out. It is, really. It's 866 pages, and my son told me it was the best book he'd ever read. And And I really did like it, but I also found it, I found it slow, really slow, and sometimes hard going. That's fair. Like that sounds like you were reading it fast. It took you a couple of months. months. And I, you know, the thing is, I, I'd actually, 
it's not that I was just reading it for months. I, I would, you know, something else would come along that I really wanted to read and I knew it would be fast. So I would just put aside 4321 and read this other book, yeah. finish it in a few days and then go back to 4321. Yeah, like, that's a good strategy. I just feel like I was drawing it out. And, and I don't know if that's the best way to read the book. I think you really do have to kind of read it a little feverishly to get into the full swing of it. And I just uh, couldn't do that. I was reading tiny little bits at a time. And so I never really got totally absorbed in, absorbed into it. Mm. Yeah. But there you go. I had a similar experience reading. Um, I've been reading a few books by David Island over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I started with his book, A Woman of the Future, which I thought was absolutely incredible. And then I read The Glass Canoe, which I also loved. But then I read his first novel, The Chantic Bird, and yeah, that book, it's only 250 pages and it sat on my bedside table for many months because I just, two things, I, mainly I felt like the the narrator, the main character was lying to me, which as it turns out at the end of the book, he kind of is, no spoilers. And secondly, just the kind of the subject matter is very, um, that the description in the introduction is, this is Australian psycho. So it's like kind of a Mad Maxi, um, romper stomper kind of situation. Yeah. And well, so yeah. Red, Red Easton Ellis. Yes. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't really a fun time and I didn't really know what to make of it and that's kind of this one of the reasons I love Ireland but I think with this particular one it just went a little bit too far so yeah but I would still recommend The Glass Canoe to anyone okay I'll I'll look out for it yeah sweet yeah I've got a big list so I'm reading I'm also reading this is uh, you know I like to have lots of different types of genres on the go I don't know why I guess because it's it doesn't seem to me I don't like having two of one genre on the go, but I don't, I like to have four or five books that are of completely different genres. Again, just maybe because certain books are right, certain types of genres are right for certain situations. Mm. So, um, so I know that nonfiction I'm actually reading and really just because it came out, uh, the 20th anniversary edition just came out and I'd never read it and I wanted to read it, but, um, Dalai Lama's The Art of Happiness, (laughs) which is quite a change of pace. Yeah. And I'm actually enjoying it. It's very readable, very like, very relaxing kind of read. Yeah, right. I've skimmed through that in bookshops and just felt annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't pick it up anymore. But yeah. Yes. Well, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, I think I need it right now. Right. Yeah, fair enough. But I'll say no more about that. And um, Fiona Wright's Domestic Interior is my poetry book at the moment, which I'm actually, I've nearly finished you don't really finish poetry, but I've nearly finished the first reading. Really. Yeah, right. Yeah, I really want to hear about Domestic Interior. I actually have it um, because I'm going to review it. So I guess I want to hear about it in a kind of no spoilers type of way <laughs> if yeah. we can. But yeah. I think we can do that. We can do that. I mean, I I haven't finished. So, and again, I haven't reviewed it. So I always feel that I, I don't have the measure of anything until I've started. Like I, I try and just read it. I don't know. I try and read books in a very um, lay person sort of way. I have to kind of stifle the critical voice and just try and enjoy them as if I were not going to review them. And then it's only when I actually sit down and kind of analyze how it hit me and the way, you know, the the responses that I had and the the different aspects of it that 
resonated or didn't resonate that, you know, I start to understand how I feel about it. But I, I really, I mean, domestic interiors, it's, it's actually, I found, and you probably found this just looking through it, it's not complex, you know, it's not hard poetry. It's not difficult poetry. It's not poetry you feel you need to read in a, a collaborative group, I don't think. It's, it's very, um, it's clean, you know, simple, straight. And do you think it's stronger for that? Do you think that's a strength of it or...? That is a great question, Alice. Um, you know, I'm I'm still doing slow poems. I'm still participating in these discussion forums um, with UPenn, various different groups. And the one that I'm doing right now is the pedagogy and uh, pedagogy and poetry session. Yeah. And where the first thing that we began reading was a, a kind of tongue-in-cheek, very humorous piece by Charles Bernstein about difficult poetry and the nature ah, of difficult cool. Yes, and so we've been talking about that very topic, and I've been thinking about, you know, is, I think Bernstein suggests, although it's so tongue-in-cheek, it's hard to know, but, you know, he suggests that in some ways difficult poetry is better as a cut above easy poetry. And I, I don't know that those distinctions, difficult and easy, are necessarily clear-cut or even helpful. <laughs> um and I, you know, he he definitely disparages Billy Collins as an example of popular and easy as negative things. And again, it's tongue in cheek, so you know I don't think you can take it straight either. Um, but one of my responses was that you know I'm not going to join him in that because I don't know that I agree. I mean, I you know I, I pick your one of your favorites, <laughs> Sid Corman, who I also love, who's you know in many many ways Sid Corman is is easy, really easy. I don't think he's popular by any means, nor is he in any way simple, but he's easy. I don't think you have to pick him apart or try and ponder the meanings of, of aspects of his work. It's not a puzzle. It hits you instantly, viscerally, and intimately. And I, I don't know that it's lesser for that kind of hit, well, no, I mean, I think that's exactly the distinguishing factor for me, at least, is so the language could be really, really complicated. There could even be a lot of words in a poem that I don't understand and I have to go and look up. But if there's some kind of connection, some kind of, um, yeah, visceral, you said, like maybe maybe emotional reaction is the word. I'm not sure, but... Yeah, some kind of connection, some kind of hit. The first time I read a poem, then I guess that puts it into the easy basket, even if it's got vocabulary that I'm not familiar with. Does that make sense? It's kind of like Absolutely. that direct line. And even if it's saying something that, you know, hasn't actually been said quite in that way ever before. And so by virtue of reading that, some doors open for you. You know, you actually are perceiving things in a way that you might not have perceived them before. Yeah, whereas, so to go back to the classic uh, Mod Po division between your, your Dickinsonian and your Whitmanian, so an Emily Dickinson poem, often I will read poems of Dickinson's, or when I do, and I'll just feel blank because I don't know what's just happened. But those are the poems that when you actually do spend time usually in a group, reading about them, thinking about them together, they become so precious to you because you've, you've found your way into this, this new space. And yeah, like you say, there are, there are 
things being said in certain ways that you never would have thought of, but it expresses something that you've always, you know, held dear to you and yeah, then they become precious in their own way too. So yeah, I mean, these distinctions are like on a surface level, they come up all the time. Like almost every time I have a conversation on here, the um, accessible, inaccessible, easy, difficult poetry distinction comes up, but almost immediately it falls apart as well. Because as soon as you try to say, oh, this poem's easy, this poem's difficult, it just kind of starts to get very shaky. Yeah, I, I don't know that they're helpful. I mean, it's interesting. I, you know, I was listening to your conversation with Stuart Cook, um, which I enjoyed very much. And um, I, I, think he, I think it was Stuart Cook, and he was talking about, you know, playing with different forms and structures and yeah. how, you know, he was he, – he, uh, I can't quite think of exactly – I'm going to botch this up. I can't quite think of exactly how he put it, but, you know, that, that the notion of just working – in a straight left justified um, sort of poetic way or saying things simply didn't appeal to him anymore. Now, I, I totally love Stuart Cook's work. Um, he's amazing. He's an amazing poet. He's great. Um, but I do, you know, I, I gain stuff from all sorts of poetry and, and some of it, um, like Dorothy Porter or Fiona Wright um, or C. Corman, it's not facile by any means. But, you know, generally it's, it's relatively linear. <laughs> And that is equally beautiful and powerful to me as, for example, Michael Farrell or, you know, or Gertrude Stein or Emily Dickinson, whose work I will need more time with to get somewhere. And I have different experiences with both types of work and I love them both. Mm, mm. I don't, I don't, I don't preference one or the other. And I mean, look, I'm not, there are types of poetry that don't appeal to me at all. Um, I would never judge it though. And I mean, I want to say I would never judge it. I definitely used to judge stuff like bush poetry, uh, rhyming poetry, dog rule, you know, that's certain types of poetry, you know, the cow, um, you know, they don't, it doesn't really speak to me, but I feel like if it's speaking to someone, that's good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. It doesn't have to speak to you. <laughs> exactly. I'm not a sole arbiter. I'm one person and I'm probably yeah. not the majority. So, yeah. you know. It's weird your, how, like, just all come up with nice lines that you know spark the Instagram imagination and got buying <laughs> our books for Christmas presents. Sorry, say that again. I said, would that we were all able to come up with you know two or three lines and a and a, a visual that sparked the young imagination, got people buying our books in droves for Christmas presents. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, it's it's just weird how poets and people who love poetry for some reason we hold ourselves and are held by other people to this standard that means we have to love all poetry for some reason like if you're in a band it wouldn't somebody wouldn't be like oh but do you like country music like you've got to love all music otherwise you can't possibly be a musician like it's really weird how we're like we worry that we don't love every single kind sometimes yeah um yeah it's a strange thing so those are the four books that you've was there another one that you had on your shelf uh actually i'm kind of reading oliver Sacks as well i've got the river of consciousness which um i've read most of the essays of so i've got i think one or two more they're really good too it was the last book he wrote before he died and um 
uh, although I, I think the essays were written at different times, and he's mm. so profound. He's su- such a beautiful writer, too. His prose is really, um, it's very poetic. Yeah, I love Oliver Sacks so much. I need to read more of him. Yeah, and um, just open, like, again, for me, I, I, I love that kind of sort of scientific writing. It really just sparks a lot of my imagination. It's very good for my poetry. <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, speaking of work that we don't like, I found a copy, I think it's the first edition here, uh, of The Dream of a Common Language. And uh, God, I was bored to death by this book, Maggie. <laughs> it's so boring. Was it by? Adrian Rich. Oh, no. Really? I know. What's wrong with me? I think I need to hand in my poet card. Because <laughs> I loved, loved, loved A Wild Patience Has Taken Me This Far. Yeah, okay. Um, it happens. Yeah, and I just was like, Adrian, I, I just don't care. <laughs> That's funny. You know, I feel like that about a lot of Edna St. Vincent Millay. I um, feel that about a lot of her work that it's – she gets so close to something that moves me and yet it doesn't. And it, it makes me feel and, – and I know that's terribly pompous for me to say about a you know, great poet – but I just feel like I want to rewrite her so that it's it's better. I feel that way too. That The whole time through this book, I'm thinking, why why have you said that? Like she uses all this repetition within poems and then between the poems of the book. and But it doesn't feel like there's any strategy behind it. It just feels like she's kind of just using the same words i mean look i'm sure there's somebody out there listening to this like throwing stuff at (laughs) their listening device um but yeah i just plodded through it barely kind of paying attention in parts and then put it down i was like okay so that was the dream of a common language maybe i'll come back to it in 10 years and and think it's amazing yeah Um, and please adrian rich defenders people who love the dream of a common language Tell me what I'm missing. It's a challenge for everyone out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to read it now and see if I feel the same way. Yeah, please tell me what like, you think. Because I've cherry-picked her. I've cherry-picked her. And, and so I've picked all these poems that I love and not necessarily read any one book. Mm. I have to go and, and actually read one book rather than cherry-picking the stuff that I really love. Oh, yeah. And look, there are lines in here that – there are lines in here that I loved but just – on a poem level and as a book I was just yeah felt really really bored and at the other end of the spectrum um a book that I picked up right when I started taking my break was uh Maggie Nelson's Bluettes which I am very happy to own and kind of loved every minute of yeah loved her love her have you read Bluettes I've read Bluettes and also um Argonauts fairly recently really recently about a year ago but i loved i loved it i just loved it i really really want to read the argonauts very soon um highly recommended yeah it was such a funny moment buying this book there's a a bookshop on burke street called the paperback books and this was just sitting in the window and I was kind of in, um, do you know that scene in Black Books where the guy walks into the bookshop and he's like, I'm just in a mood to buy a book. Do you know that, you know that <laughs> yes. scene? Yeah, yeah. I so I was kind of in that mood and I was like, oh, I just want, you know, something. And this was in the window. And I went in and said, 
oh, can I get that copy of Maggie Nelson's Bluettes, please? And the guy behind the counter was like, oh, it's an incredible book. She's got these amazing insights on loneliness. You're going to love it. And I was like, whoa, dude, okay, this is amazing that you feel so strongly about this book. But I think the bit that he was talking about was, um, I think I found it here. She says on page 28, I have been trying for some time now to find dignity in my loneliness. I have been finding this hard to do. I just thought that was so cool. It's like, yeah, there's, it's not being lonely is kind of the least dignified state. One of the least dignified states. It's just like you're, you're just this ball of need when you're lonely, as opposed to she contrasts that with um, solitude. She says it's easier, of course, to find dignity in one's solitude. Loneliness is solitude with a problem. True. Yes. Yes. But yeah, the whole book is so, it's so weird. Like this concept of being in love with the color blue and getting over someone (laughs) through that obsession. But it's so readable. And, and the way that she links, there's how many have we got here? Like 240 little prose poems. She links them all together. She goes all over the shop in terms of literary references and history and, and research, but it also feels incredibly personal. She's so great. It's so much yeah, fun. I, I feel it's kind of a trend that that I love, which is this kind of complete disregard for genre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, in which you just pull in, you just you just approach a subject and you you approach it from whatever angles, you know, you just throw out the books of how these things are meant to be done. Mm. Just, you just write poetry and you bring in scholarship and you write prose and you have history and you have memoir and it all works all together in a kind of completely weird way that seems entirely right to the reader. Yeah. It made me feel really excited to try new ways of, of writing, new ways of putting poems together. And I, I tried to write some prose poems after reading it, but I still cannot crack the prose poetry format. I just end up with very flat paragraphs. I think it's because mostly when I'm writing prose, I'm writing something like a review or some copywriting. And so I think I go into that brain space, but yeah, it, yeah. it made me appreciate how how hard they are to pull off. Yeah, it's true. Mm. I mean, just going back to Fiona Wright, because I think if you if you like Bluets, and definitely if you like the Argonauts, you'll also like Small Acts of Disappearances, which was sort of the companion book to Domestic Interior. I mean, Domestic Interior has just come out. But I believe that Wright was writing it at the same time as she wrote Small Acts of Disappearances, which, oh, of course, cool. it's done brilliantly well. Yeah, I, I really got- need to read that too. Yeah, I got that book and I just sort of stuck it in my handbag when I was going out somewhere because it was small. Mm. <laughs> and there's another problem with 4321 is because it's just uh, a practical thing. But because it was so fat, I couldn't fit it in anything I was ever carrying when I was going out anywhere, including when I was flying. So I couldn't bring it with me to anything. So I just kept getting put aside for smaller books that could fit. Yeah. Um, but um, Small Acts of Disappearance was small. So I was able to just throw it in my handbag and then I was like, oh, just read the first few pages. And and it was so fast and I was so absorbed into it, like intensely absorbed 
that I, I didn't stop reading it. Like once I started, that was it. I couldn't stop. I, I literally would like to sit and, you know, sit in waiting rooms past being called and, you know, do things to extend downtime so that I could actually read it. I'd sneak read it when I should have been doing other things. That is so cool. I feel like there's no higher compliment that you can pay a writer, hey? Than to sneak read them. Yes, (laughs) and I do. I'm afraid I I am a sneak reader at times. I mean, I'm a very open reader as well. But, you know, sometimes if I'm into a book and I'm meant to be doing other things, I will just kind of open the book and sit there and pretend to be doing something else while I'm actually reading. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. I can't wait to read that now. Don't judge me. <laughs> ah, not at all, not at all. Um, another book that I had an awfully great time reading over the summer was Bonnie Cassidy's Chatelaine. I have it on my bookshelf and I haven't actually read it. Wait, I'm sorry if you hear rustling. I'm, I'm not getting it, but I'm actually just opening the door of my bookshelf that's got doors on it and I'm pulling it out. Okay, I'm pushing it to the front. It's right in front of Helen Garner and Jeanette Winterson, which are two books that I got from the op shop that I need to read. Oh, cool. Well, I can't but wait for you I've moved to on read this. Do you like, have you read any of it yet? Yeah, I've read the whole thing. Um, I want to read it again and again. Should I read it next? Should I put it next on my pile? Yes, absolutely, okay. 100%. I mean, just, okay, here are just some titles to get you excited. <laughs> Oyster Perpetual. Axe Derby, Green Panic, uh, Sick in the Head, Stump Trunk and Can, Spunky, um, Hot Mess, Invisible Idiot. Like how fun are the titles? No, they're good. Just written of themselves. And I just, ah, I mean, you just have to read it. But the fun that she has and the way that Bonnie thinks of the way to put words next to each other and the words that she chooses. I mean, it's just, I cannot understand how she does it. Um, I'm just going to read you a random couplet here from a poem called Sessional. So I'm I'm guessing she's talking in terms of like sessional tutor, like sessional academic. And I think this is so funny. This seems a nice hollow, but too many places have been ruined by pissing in or on. (laughs) (laughs) so fun oh my god oh that's good okay all right I will I will and you know I will also I'm doing another Newcastle Writers Festival is coming up it's in April towards the end of April and um and I've got quite a few sessions so I always like to read all the work of the participants for that um I'm not I don't think I can actually reveal what I'm doing because the program's not out yet Mm. um but I, I love the sort of in the preparation. And there's absolutely, I don't think there's any mandate to do this, but I really like to go in there with a pretty solid knowledge of the work of the people that I'm, you know, whose conversation I'm facilitating. So um, I will have to actually start getting my skates on and, and doing that. So there'll be a whole stack of books around that that I'll be focusing on. That's so cool. You, I really admire your, I mean, you just read so much and you prepare so well for these things. It's, amazing well you know it's kind of a bonus to do that like I I feel like the preparation I know that's the work but I feel like it's the point of the thing for me (laughs) to be you know we live in a really fast-paced world and my life is busy your life is busy everybody's lives are busy 
And it would be so easy to just get on and not give stuff that deserves your attention, your attention. Mm. So I like to be forced, like I like to force myself to, to do things like this in order that I can do that work. You know, that, that to me, that's a joy, but it's something I might not do if I didn't have a mandate to do it. So I, I, I prefer to do it. I mean, that kind of attention to a, a piece of writing is a joy. Completely. And I, I'm the same as you, like exactly the same. That's why starting a reading group around some something that you might otherwise just skim is so important because if nobody's going to call me on it, I probably will sack off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and not go as deeply as I, as I need to, unless something is really juicy and interesting and, you know, the kind of sitting in a waiting room past being called type of book. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's super sensible. Just give yourself these, you know, somebody's waiting on me for this, even if it's the smallest thing, even if it's just like, I'm going to meet my friend for coffee and we're going to talk about book X or whatever. Um, there's a really great book by Molly Peacock that I was given by a friend of mine years ago called how to, how to read a poem and start a poetry circle. Do you know that mm. one by any chance? I don't, but I think Molly Peacock was fairly recently on, com, on, um, um, what was Commonplace. it? Commonplace, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. It's a great episode. That's really, really yeah. fun. Um, yeah. but yeah, she says in that book, like, and I think this is something we can get hung up on as well. You don't have to start a poetry circle with like 10 people and have a, you know, 10 month calendar and everyone's going to host and bring wine and whatever. Like your poetry circle can just be you and one other person the one time. Um, so yeah, you can take the pressure out of it and still have that external motivation that keeps you honest. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, or you can just do the kind of things that, you know, we did once <laughs> and just go, sorry, we're going to get together and we're going to make a, you know, we're going to do a close reading of one poem. Yeah. That's tricky. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. I still remember that poem because we talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah, sweet. that's right. Yeah. We went quite deep into it. And I know the minute I, the minute I opened that book, I, I looked at that book and I was like, this is a book for a collaborative reading. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's hard. It's a really good point. Mm. Um, another book that I have been loving spending time with, and massive shout out here to the amazing Lou Carter for pointing me in this direction, is um, Stephen Fry's The Ode Less Travelled. Okay. So I resisted this book because I hate the title. I think it's a stupid title. Sorry, Stephen Fry. <laughs> just think it's really cringeworthy. Not his worst. I actually have a book by him, which is pretty bad too. What's that called? I, um, wait, it's, now you're going to hear weird noises because I'm actually climbing to the top of my sofa. Oh, be see. careful. Yeah, it's okay. It's called Moab is my wash pot. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, it's literally on my bookshelf and the title's so bad, even though I, I do like Stephen Fry, but the title's so bad I, that I haven't actually been game to open it. Yes, the, I worship Stephen Fry, but I was just like, the Odeless Traveled, no. It's dumb, but it is so good. It's funny and it's engaging and it's like he's talking about um, meter and rhyme and, you know, like prosody, basically. Uh, 
which I didn't even know what that word meant until a couple of weeks ago when I spent some time with this book. And now I just feel like, oh my God, I need to understand everything about this. I've been sailing along writing and publishing poems, not understanding how they're made. That's terrible. <laughs> Is this um, my... Alice, I can talk to you about anything except maybe prosody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, I'm not going to make you because I have only barely started to understand it myself. But if you are interested I in it, <laughs> if you want to feel better about understanding it and being able to say, oh, look at that, that's a, you know, this. It's a trokey. <laughs> yeah, it's a trokey. Yeah, there it is. Um, then, yeah, read this book. It's really fun. And he makes you do exercises all the way through. And that's fun as well. Um, yeah, what, so. a, what a multi talented renaissance man that stephen fry is pretty cool if you take nothing else from this conversation stephen fry is is a cool dude but he can't write titles (laughs) Um, i'll just have to read moab's wash pot yeah look it's probably great it's on my bookshop we we have this really good op shop near us and um and my daughter loves going to op shop so you know i don't do it for me but because she wants to go to the op shop i'll take her and there's always like millions of really good books that I've never read that I've always wanted to read. Mm. And when you're a book reviewer, you're always getting new books. So you don't generally have a lot of time to go back and read all the, fill out all your gaps. But I get all these great books from the op shop that are like, oh my God, like, you know, I've got four Jeanette Winterson books in the last few months and, Mm. you know, heaps of other stuff that I really, really wanted to read for a long time. So I don't know, I might just take a break and actually do some proper, like, gap filling as well yeah and Stephen Fry is one of those there's always Stephen Fry books I don't know why maybe the titles (laughs) people just can't stand looking at the titles (laughs) I know yeah so we've been talking as readers uh what about writing how is your writing going yeah just writing a lot of poetry just poetry (laughs) I haven't been doing much prose I mean aside from book reviews which I'm always writing um, but mostly I've just been writing poetry. And are you uh, writing towards uh, your next collection or just writing for the pleasure of it? Yeah, there's always a collection in hand. Um, I've actually got a collection done, so that's out and about. And I've sent it to like totally inappropriate publishers that will not take it, but you got to try. You may as well. Um, that's my plan is when yeah. I finally finish this manuscript is to start at the top. That's exactly what I did. I sent it to like my number one top. I'm not going to even say who they are. I'm not going to jinx it. But, you know, like the the one that I worship and I know they won't accept it. But, you know, I feel like I should just do that. Well, yeah, because what if they do or what if even if they give you some really encouraging feedback, that might be great, too. Yeah. Even if they reject it, at least I won't go. Oh, well, you know, I can just go think. I'll just try them every single time first. I think that's a good idea. I mean, I think I think it's a bad idea to give up on any publication channel, put it that way. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, poetry publishers are so interesting. A lot of them, most of them, I'd say the majority of them don't edit very much. They do line edit sometimes. Even that, the majority of them don't. And the really great ones do. Yeah, I think that's so, so important. I would never want yeah. my poems to go out there without somebody having a close look at them. Like, I don't feel confident in saying I've caught everything. Yeah, and I was, you know, I, I listened to the last Commonplace podcast and I was listening to um, 
uh, you know, the interview with, um, was it Matthew? Who was it? Matthew. I'm going to find it. It's it's her publisher, isn't it? Rachel's her publisher. publisher. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he was talking about how, like, he Matthew's a pruder, and he was talking about how he does this, you know, really intense, sometimes quite painful edit. Like he he goes all they go all in. This is Wave, and they go all in, and they really like once they take a book on board, then they do a lot of work with the the poet, the author, to make that book really work in terms of its structure, in terms of the poems, and I just think that's such such a desirable thing as a poet to actually work with hugely experienced professional editor who's going to go, you know, because you just write your poems, right? I mean, I I don't, I'm not in a workshop. I kind of wish I was, but I'm not actually in a poetry workshop. So you just write your poems, you work on them, you make them the best you can, but you're kind of in this little vacuum. And the idea of being fully edited by somebody else really, really appeals to me. Yeah. I, I mean, I know that there are probably poets out there who wouldn't want their work touched for a million dollars. They're like, no, no, I, these have all been, these are all exactly how I want them. They're in exactly the right order. Just let me do my thing. But, um, yeah, I'm not one of those. No, I suspect the majority of us want that level of, so you want your book to be as, as good as it can possibly be. Yeah. And I know that, you know, a great editor can like turn something that's fine good into something that's really you know polished and you know that might involve removing quite a lot mm, absolutely. of stuff as well yeah. and that might be a painful process you might say well as as Rachel Zucker ended up like actually cutting her book in half and giving half of it to one publishing house and then half to another but I just feel that would be such a, an enjoyable and valuable process to go through just yeah. for the sake of it not even for the sake of the book although the book would be better but just for the sake of going through that kind of process of, of working through each poem and mm. saying, what do I really want to, you know, what, what's really the outcome I want from this particular piece? So that's kind of my dream. <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, that is the dream. That sounds great. And uh, and then, yeah, I'm, I, I mean, I'm working on a, like I, I do write a lot of poems. I'm, I'm in a, I got invited by the fabulous Kit Keelan to be part of this group called a conversation in poetry, which is, it's sort of like a closed, um, blog in which you just invited to put up poems that are responses to other people's poems. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you, you just go on there and you read the poems and you pick one and you write a response to it. And the response can be very loose. You know, you can just, it could be a direct response. It could be a redaction. It could be just a completely new poem that, you've written just after reading that other poem, but in some way there has to be, you, you just have to say, this is a response to. You don't workshop them before you put them up or? Don't workshop them and generally no comments either. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's cool. just, just go on there and pick something and just do it and put it up. And I, I find it really stimulating to work with, um, you know, to work with the poems from somebody else. Like sometimes I'll just pick up a stylistic thing that makes me write in a different way than I would otherwise write. So, uh, you know, an example, and I think you had him on your show recently, um, Toby Fitch wrote a very funny poem. So I picked his poem and I started playing with his funny poem and I ended up with something that was maybe not funny, but definitely a lot wryer and more playful than I would generally write myself without that response. Yeah, that's right. This is the thing. It's just another way to get out of your own 
vocabulary and your yes, own. Yes, that's correct. That's yeah. right. So I've been yeah. finding that pretty fruitful. I'll just go on there every couple of days and and pick something. And, and then having picked it, again, it becomes a bit of a close reading. So I give it a lot of attention for a little bit and really read that poem and think about it and, and kind of absorb it. And then I'll write my own. So it's a really nice interface, I think, between reading and writing, that's that kind of process. That's really cool. So uh, as, a, as a final question, when we get to the end of this year, what would you like to have done poetry-wise? Oh, well, a couple of things. I mean, um, I also have another little project that I'm, I'm playing with the idea of. It's completely self-indulgent, and I don't know if I'm going to do it, but I'm, I'm really thinking that I might start working on a nonfiction book. Oh, yeah. What's self-indulgent about that? That sounds the opposite of self-indulgent. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, my reasons for doing it are probably a little self-indulgent. Oh, but you I'm want thinking, to be motivated if you're going to do nonfiction. Yeah, I, I'm thinking I might write a, a series of essays on, on a particular, probably poetry-related nonfiction critical topic. Submit them various places for publication, and then if I get deep enough into it, maybe think about, you know, going back to, to uni for the... The lapsed PhD. Oh, the PhD. That is totally self-indulgent, and I know it. I know it. And now may not be the right time, but I feel like if I could just pick at it. I mean, apparently you can just do it, you know, and you don't have to even be associated with the university. You can just write your stuff, and then when you feel you have enough for a thesis, you can just submit it. That sounds like an excellent way to do it. I know. It's like, you know, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And in the meantime, if you get a couple of publications – of articles on a topic that you're interested in and an excuse to really delve in deeply into something, it's already, you you know, you've already kind of got something out of it. Yeah, that's cool. That doesn't sound self-indulgent at all. It sounds interesting. Yeah. So that's a little project at the back of my head that I've yet to coalesce because I'm, I'm, I've got some ideas, but I'm not sure exactly what my topic's going to be. Right. Um, but then from a poetry point of view, by the end of the year, I, I would dearly love to have a book coming out that I'm preparing for. So hopefully I'll have something, you know, the, the book that I'm shopping will hopefully be with somebody and coming out for the following year. And then, you know, maybe a new one kind of done and ready for shopping at that point as well. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to hear about who picks this next one up. I want to know. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> as I'm sure are you. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. I'm not holding my breath, but um, yeah, hopefully it'll be somebody will have it and uh, we'll get something out for 2019. Early 2019 is the goal. Yeah, well, thanks for saying that out loud. I mean, all these things I think are so important to just have out in the open. Um, I think it's important to sort of talk about these like administrative, um, you know, the business side of things. Well, well, I think it also helps. Yeah, I, it helps to kind of know where you're going with something too. I mean, the poems, the poems for the collection that I have out now are kind of thematic, so they're sort of memoirish. They're sort of like I don't know historical memoir, in that they're a lot of them focused around a particular time, and place, and historically cover events that happened. So. Uh, you know, I like, again, when I'm working towards a collection, I like to group things up and it, it helps with the, with the writing to have a, a structure in mind, I think, that you're working towards. Yeah, definitely. 
definitely. That's the issue that I'm coming up against at the moment is I've got all these poems. I've got plenty of poems. They're not really related to one another. So. <laughs> They're not resolved to something. No, no. Trying to find a through line is, yeah, a bit of a trick. Yeah, because I think with all books, you know, it does help to have, even if they're different sections, it helps to have a kind of through line. Yeah, just... helps the reader so, for sure. And what are your poetry goals? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm the same. I would love to have a manuscript, even just submitted. I don't really care if anyone's picked it up, but yeah, this is, yeah, probably my third run at bringing my poems together in a manuscript, but it's the first time that it feels really proper and serious like in the past I've kind of gone oh there's a manuscript competition I'm gonna pull together you know 30 poems and yay it's a book um and this is the first time I've actually gone okay no so how do these poems relate to each other do they relate to each other if they don't what's the justification for that um how can you put them together in a way that makes some kind of sense and do you even want you know, some of these poems, I've got a lot out there in the world that are published that I wouldn't actually, like nothing against them, but I don't want to bring them into a published collection because I don't feel like I would write them today. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the result is I've only got like 20, 25 that I actually really love. And that's pretty short. <laughs> it's probably too short. So, yeah, thinking about that. Chat. Yeah, I mean, it's a chapbook for sure, but like, you know, um, is that, yeah, do I want to do that? Just get it out there and move on? I'm not really sure. Yeah. So, yeah, well, have all that resolved it would be good. There's one one really good chapbook competition in, in the US that I think Dennis Smith is um, judging. Oh, really? Oh, that's good yeah. to know. Yeah, cool. I'll send you a link. Yeah, thanks. That'd be sweet. I'll put the link in the show notes, everyone. Don't worry. Yeah, that's right. We need all the competition. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, here's to us reaching those particular goals. And, yeah, maybe reading some Michael Farrell together in the meantime. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally up for it. I, I definitely think Michael Farrell is, is a writer whose work is more fun in a group. Yeah, sweet. Let's do that. And then you can remind yourself to, to laugh as well, because I really think the humor aspects, I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a Sturm and Drang kind of poet. I tend to, I tend to write from, you know, some guttural place and I tend to read from the same guttural place. And, and sometimes I just need to be reminded that, you know, this is really fun. This is hugely fun. Yep. And it's, it's okay hilarious. to just yeah. laugh and play. Yeah. And you can really do that. Like that's group reading really does that in such an enjoyable way yeah for sure looking forward to it maggie yeah same here awesome thanks for chatting with me oh always a pleasure alice